You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. So in this talk, we're going to discuss the concept of equanimity and what that means for your personal practice and also what that means for your experience with the practice off the, off the meditation cushion and off the yoga mat and into your everyday life. Equanimity is uh, the Sanskrit word for upeksha, which means not being disturbed by. And one of the reasons why, for example, equanimity is a very important concept in our contemporary experiences. For example, there are so many things to react to moment to moment. For example, there's a fly that has just landed or numerous flies which are interacting with my face at this moment. And without the teaching of equanimity, I would start slapping myself. And that obviously has some negative disadvantages. Number one, slapping yourself uh, could hurt yourself at some moment. But more than anything, the quality of mind, it, which is it, when left untrained, when faced with the inevitable irritations of life, like this poor fly that has nothing else to do with itself, uh, will harp into a pattern that's simply described as attachment and aversion, craving or clinging. Or in the words of uh, the Buddha, tanha. And tanha is the ancient Pali word for thirst. And we often think mistakenly that what we react to is the thing which is irritating us. Let's just take the fly as an example because it's pretty present. I've been talking to numerous people that have said, flies, irritating me, I'm trying to meditate. And the fly is landing on my face, it's annoying. I can't meditate because the fly is there. And we blame the fly. If it wasn't for this fly, then I would be so peaceful. You know, it's just this fly's fault. So we externalize what's actually happening. We misidentify the source of our suffering. So the teaching of equanimity, which is the Buddha's teaching uh, primarily, uh, comes from the idea that by misidentifying the source of our suffering, we will never be able to actually solve that suffering. We'll never be able to evolve as a human being as long as we think that the fly is the problem. So what do we have to do? We have to understand, well, that we are the problem. But what specifically about us is the problem? It, first of all, even if you removed all the flies from the planet, which would be a fruitless endeavor because I think that they would just self, you know, it would just sort of come up again. Even if you exterminated all the flies and the next day there'd be more of them. There's some egg sitting somewhere we couldn't solve or there would be some mutant fly that escaped us and we couldn't do it. But even if we did it, what would happen next? There would be something else that would be irritating. Then you move on to the next irritating thing. There's always something irritating, whether it's a fly or an airplane or dust or the temperature. The temperature is too cold. I don't know many, eh, it's so, so cold. Then what happens next after it's so cold? What happens next? Then it's too hot. Oh my God, it's too hot. Now I have to remove clothes. That was so cold, now I'm hot. So as long as we externalize and we blame the external world for our tanha, our craving, then we never find the true source of our suffering. This was the teaching of the Buddha. Many of you have probably seen the statue of the Buddha with the fingers touching the ground. You know the one I'm talking about? There is a statue of the Buddha with one hand like this and the fingers touching the ground. This particular statue is said to represent 
the moment of the Buddha's enlightenment. And he said, uh, after sitting for three days without changing his posture, um, one of his first realization was the truth of suffering. And he found out what the source of what, what the source of suffering really was. And his that movement down where he put his fingers on the ground is essentially him saying, let this earth be my witness, but I have I figured it out. And this is where the beginning of his teaching started. First teaching was life contains suffering and there's a source for that suffering and there's a way out and this is the way. So this was his teaching, relatively simple. So let's go back to the fly. Do you think you're actually reacting to the fly when it lands on you? Most people would say, yes, I'm reacting to the fly. It has landed on me. I'm irritated by it. However, the Buddha's teaching is more subtle than that. The Buddha's teaching, the teaching of equanimity says, oh no, you think you're reacting to the fly, just like you think you're reacting to the wind or you think you're reacting to this or that. What you're actually reacting to is what he calls or what is called in the Pali language, Vedana. And Vedana is body sensations. See, when the fly lands on you, then your body produces sensations. Those sensations are not to your liking, not the fly. If the fly landed on you and produced pleasurable sensations, you would love the fly. For example, say a friend were to come up to you from behind and start massaging your shoulders. This would produce hopefully a pleasurable sensation and you would think, wonderful, what a good friend I have. Fantastic, right? The fly is no different. It's landing on you and producing some sensations, but the mind has said this sensation is bad. Therefore, we generate tanha, craving or thirst for that sensation, which we identify as unhappy to go away. And we start to fight it, become irritated against it, react to it. And as long as we blame the fly, we lose our ability to remain equanimous. As long as the fly is the problem, we will never eradicate all the flies of the planet. We will never train flies not to land on us. Now, that which is pleasurable, you think. Oh, well, let me just run for pleasure. My friend who massages my shoulders, let me go around them all the time. That's the feeling I want. Yes, I want more. But the Buddha says, no, this is not pleasure. This again is more craving, tanha. Now we have craving. What if that friend doesn't want to massage your shoulders every time that you see them? Then you think, oh, you were my friend yesterday. You massaged my shoulders. Now do it again. Put your friends in my hand hurts. I've been massaging everyone all day. I don't want to massage your shoulders anymore. Then you're mad. If you were my friend, you did it yesterday, but not today. Then again, we have tanha. So the teaching of the Buddha is Vedana, Pachaya, Tanha. Vedana, these body sensations, arise and... When we experience them, the untrained mind generates tanha. We crave pleasure and we avert from pain. We run from pain, we run towards pleasure. When we experience pleasure, we hold on to it. And that holding creates a suffering. When we experience pain, we run from that pain. And that aversion, that aggression, again creates suffering. And the Buddha's discovery is that this is not to anything other than Vedana, body sensations. So if you can train the mind, we are not training to become neutral to other people, but we are training to become neutral to the body sensations when they arise within us. And then the discovery of the Buddha moves to the next level, which is Vedana, Pachaya, Panya, that the very same body sensations, which lead to craving, clinging, attachment, and aversion, if used properly, can create 
the very foundation of wisdom. So it's not that we need something other than our experience. That very same experience, which in the untrained mind leads to suffering, in the trained mind can lead to wisdom. So it's pretty simple. Which path do you choose? Do you want more suffering or do you want more wisdom? I would say that all of you probably sign up for wisdom if you could, if you made the choice. So we have to learn how to practice. First, we have to begin to identify sensations. We have to identify. Because here's the thing with Vedana, our body sensations. We have gross sensations. Gross sensations are very obvious. The fly lands on us. This is obvious sensation. Other sensations like pain, heating sensations, cooling sensations, these are obvious. However, the subconscious mind is constantly reacting to what we could call subtle sensations. And these are subtle sensations which exist just below the surface of consciousness. But the subconscious mind is constantly reacting to these Vedana, these subtle sensations. So we are constantly in attachment and aversion, but we remain unconscious of it. Contemporary neuroscience confirms what the Buddha discovered uh, nearly 2,000, more than 2,000 years ago, which is that only 5% of our thinking is operated in the conscious mind, right? 5%. So this leaves a 95% of our thinking to be controlled and operated by the subconscious mind. So this means the reactions, the craving, the clinging is going on constantly, but we're not aware of it. And as long as we remain unaware of it, we cannot change our reaction patterns. We're lost. And this is the cycle of suffering or what we could call the delusion of samsara. When we are attached and attached to pleasure, and averting from pain, but entirely unaware of it. A classic example of this is if you're speaking to a person and they start twitching or scratching various parts of their body. I'm sure the last time you've spoken with someone, you may have, you may have just done it, for example, right? So you don't even realize it, but suddenly you're scratching. And then your friend says, oh, do you have an itch? And you're like, what do you mean? An itch? What are you talking about? And then you're scratching your head. Oh, am I? I didn't realize. Or... Observe when you change your posture, right? Now, most people did not think, my leg is producing some sensation. I think it's time to move the leg. The leg automatically moves. We automatically scratch. We shift, we change. Why are we changing? Why are we scratching our nose here or there? Why are we doing this? Because the subconscious mind has experiencing some Vedana, some body sensations, and the subconscious mind is reacting. Oh, I don't like this. I need to move here. Oh, I don't like that. I need to find pleasure. It's seeking pleasure, comfort, pleasure, comfort, away from pain, over to pleasure. The animal nature is running and ruling the subconscious mind. And we're caught in that cycle of suffering. And the only way out, according to the traditional teaching, the wisdom of the Buddha, is simply to become aware of all that we are unconscious of. I say simply because it is quite a heroic task to unify the conscious and the subconscious mind. Only when the mind is able to perceive what the Buddha referred to as the depth level of the mind or the 95% of our thinking, which is subconscious, will we be able to be truly whole and free and only then will we be firmly rooted in equanimity. And then without that, we'll always be reacting to one thing or another, one thing or another, blaming it on others. Oh, if only I got this job, then I would be happy. Only if I had this type of partner, then I would be happy. If I had this type of house, then I would be happy. 
But when actually what we're looking for is a Vedana, a body sensation, which will always remain just beyond our reach. So there are a couple of truths that once we can lay the foundation of equanimity that we become aware of. The first truth, when we truly become equanimous and we observe Vedana for what they are, is the truth of what's called anicca or the truth of change, impermanence. Everything changes. The sensation that we experience doesn't last forever. Heating sensation turns into cooling sensation. Cooling sensation turns into heating sensation. Pleasurable sensation turns into painful sensation. Can anyone think of an example like that? When does pleasure turn into pain? What do you think? Hmm? Oh, love, yeah, okay, it'll go right for the big tragedy. We love and then we hate, right? How about something more simple? Scratching a mosquito bite. Yes, at first, wonderful, bliss. Then bleeding, pain, stupidity, humiliation, you know? Or a zit, maybe something similar, you know? I will get you, I will get you. Oh, you got me, you know? Then you have a scandal on your face. What have you done? You know, something has bitten you. No, I bit myself, you know? Or food sometimes is pleasure and pain. Oh, this is so wonderful. Let me have another one. Oh, again, so wonderful. Let me have another one. Oh, let me have another Too much, too much then suffering, suffering, right? After the fourth donut, it starts to be too much. And we stop before the fourth donut. So then we have this idea of we're driven without any idea of how to act with uh, wisdom, without panya. So how does this work in terms of the actual application of our practice? First and foremost, we need the foundation of what is called sati or mindfulness. If we don't understand the framework of mindfulness, then we can never practice true equanimity. So the framework of mindfulness begins with a very simple teaching, which is called anapanasati. And this is awareness of breath, awareness of breath, the natural, normal breath. And it's said that the teaching has to begin with the very simple technique of anapanasati, because if we cannot become neutral to our breath, the natural, normal breath, we can't practice equanimity towards the breath then we have no hope of remaining equanimous towards the intense sensations which arise on the superficial level of the body and on the depth level of the body. So Anapanasati is the foundation of mindfulness and it is the most universal teaching. A couple of good things to think about the breath. Number one, the breath is universal. Every human being, every animal being, you could even wager to say even every plant being, has breath. Without breath, there is no life. Breath is universal. Breath has no religion. You can't say, oh, this is a Christian breath. This is a Muslim breath. This is a Buddhist breath. Everything is a breath, human breath. So this is very important that we take a universal object so that every human being, no matter what walk of life, no matter what religion, no matter what age, no size, nor shape, has the same neutral object. So we have a universal experience, the breath. The breath is moving in. The breath is moving out. That's it. As long as we are alive on this planet, the breath will be there. So we have a universal object of attention. Number two, the breath is very important because the breath and the mind are related. The breath and the mind are related. So the Buddha discovered that the Vedanas, the body sensations and the breath are correlated with what he called the contents of the mind. And the contents of the mind uh, are what we're thinking, what we're feeling, so our emotions and our thoughts. They're very intimately related with our breath 
and the body sensations. So if we can observe our natural, normal breath, this means we have a window into the state of our mind. So there's a breath that's associated with every emotion. Think of one emotion. Could you, someone, so we have love and hate. Is there, can you think of a breath of hate? What does that feel like? Yeah, it's, it's accelerated. What's the physical sensation or the Vedana, the body sensation of hate? Heat and tension, usually. Right? So we're heating sensations. We're overheating. There's tension. There's tightness in the body. How about fear? What about fear? We have accelerated breathing. We have a shortening, a constriction, right? Similar to anger, but not always heating, sometimes cooling. Fear can be very cooling. That's why we have the expression um, like bone chilling fear, right? Sometimes fear is also heating, of course, when it comes with panic, then it can be like that too. So how about the breath of sadness? What does that sound like? A deep sigh, a lot of exhalations, everything ends on a down note and more down. You can't get up, mm. right? So some people, they don't even know they're sad, but they walk in. <sighs> oh, are you feeling okay? I'm fine. Why do you ask, right? Well, the breath is telling you, oh, something is wrong here. How about the breath of happiness? What does that feel like? This, this could be laughter. This could be a diaphragmatic breath. This could be a relaxed breath an expansion in the body, kind of a feeling of openness, right? Many people have a hard time actually tuning in to a breath of happiness so that the happy moments of our life pass us by. We don't even realize that this was a happy moment until we look back and we realize that was a really good time. But imagine if with the tool of equanimity, you could tune in and realize this is a happy breath. This moment, I am happy then we could embrace that moment for what it is with the recognition that it won't last forever. So as this breath changes, sometimes happy, sometimes sad, sometimes warm, sometimes cool, equanimity begins to be the field of experience which grows so wide so that it contains all experiences. And as long as the mind identifies with the temporary arising and passing of Vedana, the mind is limited. But when the mind begins to identify with the field of equanimity or the field of awareness, then the mind can expand and can hold all things equally. So we can observe anger is present. This is important. Many people assume that because we practice yoga or meditation, we'll never become angry again. And all that happens, we suppress anger. And then we, feel we become guilty of our anger. We think, oh, why am I angry? I'm a yogi. I should never be angry again. You know, this is a complete falsehood. In fact, sometimes when you practice yoga, meditation, you become more present to all of those, what we could call the shadow side of ourself. We don't know how to work with that. If we don't have the tool of equanimity, then we run from our own shadow, creating yet more suffering. So we start again. We go back to Anapanasati. We understand that we observe the breath as it is. We understand that the breath is a universal, neutral object of attention. And once we cultivate the state of sati, of mindfulness, deep, true mindfulness, then we can take that laser beam focus and we can look in the body. And then we can have, um, then we can have uh, kaya sati, which is awareness or mindfulness of the field of the body. In the realm of the body, most people begin with the physical body, right? 
of the physical body. If you tune into your physical body right now, take a moment and tell me what sensations become present to you when you tune into your physical body. What comes up for you? Pins and needles, something is sleeping because you were trying to sit in a way that was not advantageous for your body, right? So we have pins and needles. Anybody else got anything that, that tunes in? The lower back? Uncomfortable, so we got two painful sensations, right? Does anybody have a pleasurable sensation? Complete pleasure, lucky you, right? So everyone's like, eh. <laughs> produce more pain for other people by saying that. <laughs> How about this? What, so we have, we have one pleasure, probably majority others are pain. <laughs> this thing is bothering, that thing is bothering. Huh? I feel guilty. Guilty, how does that appear in the body? Uh-huh, but that has a body sensation, right? So what is that? It's interesting. Yeah, and then the guilt will probably come up as like a heaviness or some, a constriction of some type that you become aware of. And so, it, yeah, so, so what's interesting about that, though, is um, it requires a lot of training to remain equanimous to these things. It's not something we can flip a switch and become equanimous, right? So it's not that we should not react. And it's not that we should not move when something is painful, but it's that we become aware of our patterns of reaction. And in that is liberation. So we've only talked about two types of sensation so far, though. Pleasure, pain, what's missing? They said there are three tones of sensation. Pleasure, pain, what else? Neutral, neutral. So there are a lot of sensations, which you're feeling right now, which are neither pleasurable nor painful. And here's the secret of life, right? Especially from the teaching of the Buddha. The vast majority of our sensations are neutral. The vast majority of our life experience is neutral. There are highs and lows, and the human brain attaches to the highs and to the lows and magnifies them and makes them dramatically bigger than they are, so that we think that our life is defined by pleasure and pain, by highs and lows, when the actual vast majority of our life is a field of neutrality that we, that we disassociate from, that we delete, because it's not making an impression on us. The most common reaction to neutrality, to those vast neutral sensations, is boredom. So we often tune out from boredom. And one of the teachings that can come from mindfulness training to get really firmly rooted in equanimity is to finally be comfortable with a vast sea of neutrality so that we're no longer craving the next high and running from pain so we can just be as we are. But this requires practice. You know, one of the most frustrating things about mindfulness teaching is just to hear about it and then think we need to do it. Like what you experienced. I just heard about it. So now the fly is there. So I, what am I supposed to do with the fly? I'm just supposed to let it land on me and crawl around on me. You can't do that. You know, so then it's frustrating. That's why we have a, to a tool, a teaching and a technique. We have to start with becoming neutral to the object of the breath. And as soon as you tune into the breath, what becomes interesting is it's so difficult to become neutral to the object of the breath. Now, you're a yoga practitioner. Yoga practitioners have one of some of the hardest times becoming neutral to the breath. Who can tell me why? What does the yogi associate with the breath? What do you think? How do we want to breathe in yoga? What do we like? Deep breathing. So the yogis have already have a value judgment placed on the breath. Deep breathing is good. 
if I'm not doing deep breathing, something is bad. Because we do so much asana, so then we think, deep breathing, I must be deep breathing. But anapanasati, the teaching of mindfulness, is just to become aware of the natural breath. Can you be doing deep breathing in your whole life? No. You have to do what is called unconscious breathing. We have to just let the breath breathe as it is. See, when we're doing asanas, we need deep breathing because we're doing asanas. But when we're just doing a sitting practice of sati and we're trying to become aware of the breath, we must let the breath take its natural course. If we start to control or manipulate the breath, this is because we have said this breath, this breath is not okay. I must change the breath to something which is okay for me. And in that moment, we have had a judgment and an antagonism with our experience of reality. So the teaching of sati is simple. Bring your attention to the breath. Observe the breath as it is. Let it be there. Let the breath move in, the breath move out, and then become neutral to it over and over again. Is it easy? Absolutely not, right? Absolutely not. I personally think meditation is, and particularly the teaching of meditation, equanimity is more challenging than asana. You know why? Asana is entertainment. You know, the activity of trying to do a handstand is kind of cool. The activity of trying to put your leg behind the head for better or worse is kind of entertaining, you know, but closing your eyes and becoming aware of the subtlety of the breath in and the subtlety of the breath out to know your mind in that moment is to know your insanity, you know, because you will close your eyes. You'll bring your attention to your breath. And what will happen? Will you feel the breath? No, you won't at first because your mind will be thinking of this and thinking of that. There'll be a fly that lands on you. You'll have a whole spin around the fly. And then suddenly the foot will be asleep. You'll need to move the foot. And then this will happen and that will happen. You'll be thinking of this, thinking of that, dreaming of this, dreaming of that. And it's said that after many intensive rounds of practice, The goal is to keep the mind focused on the breath for what do you think would be an accomplishment? What do you think? Any guesses? What do you think? You got three minutes. What what else we got? What do you think? Any other guesses? Hmm? (laughs) She has a very high standard. Always keep the attention on the breath. Yes, when you become the Buddha, then you can do like that. But for all of us, as we begin our journey of sati, it's at one minute. This is considered to be an accomplishment that you can reach after somewhere between 500 and 1,000 hours of practice. (laughs) So we have this as reaching the beginning journey of mindfulness after 10,000 hours of mindfulness practice. So if we start sitting today, how are we going to accumulate 10,000 hours of practice? It's going to be a long time. Maybe until your dying moment, you're going to be like, all right, I got another 40 hours or so. Let me practice here on my deathbed real quick. Better get in the 10,000 hours. It could be a good time to practice, Um, but I recommend you start now. Uh, So it could take a long time. But in meditation, we, science has studied meditation quite intensively. And once we reached about the 10,000 hour mark of meditation, there are qualitative changes to our brain chemistry that start to be measurable. We become different human beings, less reactive. We have different, different brain centers light up. So instead of the typical patterns of thinking about the future and ruminating on the past, instead of the hyper reactivity of the amygdala or the emotional response system, uh, 
meditators and people that have been practicing sati or mindfulness-based meditation for more than 10,000 hours have different centers light up in the brain. The dorsolateral prefrontal cortex starts to begin to light up. So our executive function can start to supersede the immediacy of emotions, which means we can take more intelligent and better decisions once we reach that pivotal point of mindfulness. So it's something to reach towards, but it's a long road to get there. Right? I recommend that everyone start off with five minutes of sitting. This is how I started sitting more than 20 years ago. I never thought I could develop a sitting practice because my mind was too jumpy. So it's just not for me. You know, I'll never be able to sit there. If I close my eyes, all my crazy thoughts come up to the surface. Then what am I going to do? And I'm going to have to face them. So I never thought I could do a sitting practice. But I started off sitting for five minutes a day. After I started sitting for five minutes a day, five minutes became 10 minutes, 10 minutes became 20 minutes. Finally, I joined a meditation retreat called the Vipassana Meditation Retreat. It's a 10-day silent retreat. I've sat probably, I don't know, somewhere around seven of these courses, uh, which accumulate a good number of meditation hours because you don't do anything other than meditate during the whole time. Every time I say that, there's a lot of questions that come up. People say, but what do you do all day? Exactly what do you do in a meditation retreat? I'm like, well, you sit there. They're like, well, what else? Well, you do your laundry occasionally. They feed you, so you eat, and then you sit there again. And in the morning, you sit there, and then in the evening, you're still sitting there with occasional breaks to go to the bathroom and eat and do a little laundry if the laundry facilities are available. You go for a walk here or there, but primarily you are just sitting there in silence for about 10 days. I don't recommend anyone start there. If you start there, you probably never meditate again. So if you take five minutes a day and begin the sati practice, this can be the foundation. Why five minutes? Five minutes is the statistically significant amount of time to create a measurable difference in your brain chemistry, which means you can work focus, what we call convergent focus. This means bringing your mind to a single point of attention, what is called in Sanskrit, the ekatattva state, where we reach a single point of concentration. All meditation techniques of mindfulness begin with what's called convergent focus, where you utilize the full power of your senses to gaze at one point or to focus on one point. After you master convergent focus, there's another type of sati practice, which is a wholeness-based mindfulness practice called divergent focus. Divergent focus, for example, would change the attention rather than to a specific focal point to the experience of wholeness. For example, rather than focusing on the breath specifically, we could focus on the body in its entirety as an experience of wholeness. But you can't start there because if the mind cannot focus on a single point of attention, the mind cannot be big and broad enough to experience wholeness. So we understand that sati practice, it requires a firm foundation, but it begins with something very small. After sati, we have the practice of vipassana or the practice of wisdom or insight. And we're laying the foundation for that. Equanimity is the foundation of insight. Without equanimity, what we think is wisdom is actually just our opinion. Mm -hmm. So we have to be able to make that distinction. What is truth? What is opinion? What is the fact? What is what we think about the facts? If we can't determine that, then we have no potential to experience true insight or wisdom. So after we practice sati, then we can practice vipassana. We will not do any vipassana practice today. Uh, after we practice sati and vipassana, we can practice a meditation technique called metta, which is the meditation of loving kindness. Now, many people experience the meditation of loving kindness by 
Uh, prayer is a, is a form of metta. When we offer prayers for our loved ones, when we um, practice forgiveness, this is, these are all forms of metta. In the traditional practice of sati, we clean our mind of all of our judgments, and then we move deeply into the practice of insight and wisdom. And only then, once the mind is very pure, then we can treat the metta practice like planting new thoughts. By clearing out the garden of the mind, we till the soil of the earth within ourselves to receive the seeds of loving kindness. The idea being that if we start with metta, people like, oftentimes people like metta practice, like it's kind of nice to send love to beings. But if you haven't tilled the soil, it would be like planting beautiful seeds in an overgrown garden. I don't know if you've ever seen an overgrown garden or like an old empty lot that has a lot of weeds and everything that was on it. If you tried to plant the most beautiful fruit trees in the midst of an overgrown garden, the weeds would overtake those seeds and prevent them from growing. Well, the field of the mind is like that, a jungle littered with the seeds of our tanha, our cravings, our clingings, our attachment, our aversion, the source of our suffering. And until we remove and eradicate the source of the suffering, then no matter what seeds we plant, they'll always be overgrown and overtaken by the past patterns of our own behavior. So it should be said that we're all students on the path. And what is enlightenment when we think about sati? The degree to which we've cleared our fields. To that degree, we can consider ourselves to be lightened, <laughs> freed from the load of our hatred, our animosity, our depression, our fear, and everything that's holding us back from experiencing our true state of wisdom. So to that degree, we work and we continue to work. We have many tools in our arsenal, right? The asana practice bring, brings forth some things that are deeply inside. The awareness or sati practice helps us become equanimous towards those things. And over time, we can become more steady on the path. Mm -hmm. So I'd like us to do a little practice for about five minutes. And this will be the beginning. Maybe you'll take it away as the beginning of your sati practice, your mindfulness practice. Or maybe you'll take it as a reminder if you already have a firm foundation in the sati practice. So there are a couple of things that I'd like to ask of you. During the short time that we sit together, I want to ask you not to change your posture. You accept? Okay. Now, it's important that your prefrontal cortex, that, that decision-making part of the brain, accepts that no pain you experience for the short time that we sit together will lead to permanent damage. Do you agree? Okay. Remember that. Because the emotions will start to come up. But you see, <clears throat> but my pain is real. I should move, you know? So number one, we're going to keep the same posture. Very short time. If we don't keep the same posture, how can we become neutral to our pleasure and our pain? Number two, we have a very limited focal point to feel the breath, okay? We look for the breath inside the nostrils, around the entrance of the nose, and then the area around the upper lip. The lips will be naturally sealed. So again, utilizing the executive function of the brain, we have to agree that the breath will make contact with this area naturally, normally, that you don't need to force the breath. Understand? Now, number three, we accept that there is no right and there is no wrong way to breathe just for these five minutes. Okay, we accept. However the breath is, we let the breath be. If it's deep, let it be deep. 
If it's shallow, let it be shallow. If it's warm, let it be warm. If it's cool, let it be cool. If it's only going through one nostril, accept it. If it's going through both nostrils, accept it. I'll guide you a little bit through what to feel. All right. Now, last point. We accept that we are not good at this from the beginning, which means you bring your attention to your breath and then suddenly another thought will arise. You'll be thinking, oh, it will invade some thought. Who knows of what? It can be anything. A thought comes up. It could be an avocado. Suddenly you see one. Oh, avocado. Maybe I want to eat one, right? And we can think of that. Or suddenly we can think of something fun. Donut. Where are donuts? We can imagine. Or suddenly we may think of shopping, right? I need to buy a fun gift for a friend. And we can think of all the wonderful items in the shops over there. I would go see them later. You know, and so whatever pops into the mind, what do we do? This is your training moment. You observe, my mind has gone away back to the breath. That's it. That's all we do. You have to be nice to yourself in that moment. A fly lands on you. That's what we should talk about that because it will probably happen. Number one, give yourself at least a pause to feel the sensation that you feel before you remove the fly and see if it's possible just for this short period of time to let the fly roam around on you. It'd be uncomfortable, but you just observe fly roaming, fly roaming. And you also use your executive function. This fly is not biting me, right? So maybe you have made a friend, right? If it was a mosquito, then you may need to take some different action, right? Not necessarily kill them, but maybe put some fence around yourself, okay? Okay, so let's sit. And then if there are any questions after the sit, then we have a little, probably have a little time for some questions. So make any last little final movements that you would like to make to produce what will soon be an uncomfortable position. We have a little background music to our sit, which is also nice. <clears throat> okay. After you settle on the posture, allow your eyes to close. However the breath naturally is in this moment, let it be. As we begin the practice of Anapanasati, bring your attention to the area inside the nostrils, at the entrance of the nose, and along the upper lip. And look for the sensation of the breath, the Vedana, of the breath as it moves in, the breath as it moves out. the touch of the air as it makes contact. You might, for example, notice that the inhalation makes contact inside the nostrils, on this area, on that area, or along the upper lip. Or you might notice that the sensation of the breath is slightly different from inhalation to exhalation.
Notice the temperature of the breath. See if you can identify whether it is warm or cool or whether it changes from warm to cool. Identify cooling sensation, warming sensation. Notice the depth of the breath, whether you feel your breath very deep, rhythmic, steady, or whether the breath feels shallow, light, maybe even irregular. Practice equanimity so that the breath is merely the breath. Your awareness is bare awareness freed from the burden of any value judgments. Practice equanimity. Reach for the state of neutrality, objectivity, so that the breath can reveal itself to you as it is. Deep, shallow, somewhere in between, warm, cool, changing from warm to cool, If the mind seems to get distracted towards another thought, observe that the mind has moved away from the focal point of the breath. Forgive yourself and return to the breath. If there are sensations in the body or around the body which seem to draw your attention, a burning sensation here or there, an itchy sensation, or some other feeling of discomfort, observe that vedana, that body sensation. Recognize the temporary nature of that sensation. It is not permanent. It has arisen and it will pass away. Then return your attention to the breath. Inside the nostrils, at the entrance of the nose, and in the area around the upper lip. Recognizing that these same very sensations which can lead to more craving, clinging, can also be the foundation of the wise mind, the equanimous mind. Keep your entire attention focused in the area inside the nostrils, at the entrance of the nose, and along the upper lip.
Whatever the experience is, remember to practice remaining neutral so that whatever is simply is. In the words of the Buddha, yata Buddha, reality as it is, freed from the burden of our value judgments, is a vast sea of open awareness. By bringing the attention to the breath, we begin the journey of cultivating the true state of sati, of mindfulness. No matter how intense the thought may be, no matter how pressing the emotion may seem, no matter how urgent the physical sensation may appear, all is temporary. What arises will pass away. Practice just for these few moments, not to react. Practice equanimity. Awareness of the breath is the foundation of the equanimous mind. The breath, the universal object of attention, always present and ever-changing. To become equanimous is to make peace with your experience, to drop the war and accept what is as it is. We have taken a few steps down the road of Anupanasati and we have many more steps yet to take.
So allow yourself now a long, conscious, deep breath in. And as you exhale, soften the posture. And you're welcome to come completely back. Good. How'd you do? Was okay? Oh, good. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> it's very interesting, you know? So, sleepy sensations are very common. Uh, I didn't have a clock. I think it was a little more than five minutes, I would say. Yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't. I, I didn't. I don't have a clock. I think it was closer. It's closer to ten minutes. You know. So the sleepiness is interesting. Sometimes we don't realize we're tired. Then we sit, and suddenly we realize, wow, I'm really exhausted. If we nod off that much, we're, we're probably quite tired. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's when the mind moves from conscious to subconscious. It's the conscious mind that that works in the fields of what we call like numeration, where we denominate and we can work. You know, these these sort of increments of time. Time is fiction, right? So it's it's created and it's created by the conscious mind to to sort of divide and dissect. And when we move into the subconscious mind, then time begins to be fungible. It can move fast. It can move slow. You know, totally fungible. As soon as we transcend the conscious mind, so what can comes what can come up sometimes with meditation uh, in the sleepy state? A couple of things. First of all, I would imagine you're like underneath. You're controlling this event, of course. Your tiredness. So that's first and foremost. When if you're tired and you sit without something to do, like yoga nidra, there's little something to do. If you have no activity and you just have to bring the attention to the breath, if you're sleepy, you will sleep. And they say, that's fine. Let yourself not off for a moment. Come back. It helps. However, there are those individuals that are fully rested. Nothing to do. Absolutely nothing to do. They've slept for 10 hours in the night. They're full of energy. You make them sit and then they snore. And then you get them up for meditation and they could run a marathon and make them sit and they're snoring. This is something different. This is considered to be subcon- uh, sorry, unconscious energy. And the mind is not ready to be conscious with the unconscious yet. So it's considered an obstacle. That individual only knows the thoughtless, wordless state in the moment before they fall asleep. So it begins to be a, like a conditioned response. Oh, I'm thoughtless. Huh? Time to sleep. And it's good. We need that right before we go to bed. So and, and this way, meditation is even more stripped down than the yoga nidra practice. Because we're just in the field of emptiness, in the field of nothingness. So the idea is that rather than trying to find the present moment, rather than trying to find, you know, awareness of this or awareness of that, that the real goal of meditation is to realize that we are the present and that we are awareness. We are not this, this or that, but we are the field in which all things happen. You know, so we're we're trying to realize that we're not the mind, we're not the body. Or not all of these things that we experience, but something else. Mm-hmm. Any practical questions? Everyone's clear about the technique? It's relatively simple. 
you're allowed to swallow and stuff like that. If you sit for more than five minutes, please feel welcome to change your posture, but try to limit it to once every about five minutes or so. Eventually, you could sit for an hour without changing your posture. Now, remember the story I told you of the Buddha that placed his fingers on the ground in the moment of enlightenment? Well, he sat in what's contemporarily known as the, the experience of aditan or aditana, which is strong determination. And the Buddha, after experiencing many different spiritual techniques within India, right? trying this and trying that, trying this and trying that, trying this and trying that, worked really hardly and reached what you could call the pinnacle of each of those techniques, finally said, I myself must discover the truth. And he took what was called aditan, and he sat under the Bodhi tree, and he didn't change his posture for three days. So imagine that. Now we've tried to sit maybe some, maybe, maybe maximum 10 minutes without changing the posture. Imagine what kind of strong determination if you said, I will sit in this posture, and I will not change until I experience the truth. And so he did that. And we have the teaching today because he sat there for those three days without changing his posture. Let this earth be my witness, he said. I have discovered the way out of suffering. And he began to teach and he taught until his last breath. There's a wonderful story from the last moments of the Buddha's life. There was a, a, someone that came from far away to get the teaching from the Buddha. And then his assistant said, no, this is his last day on this earth. You have to go away. The Buddha heard someone has come from far away to receive the teaching. Let him in, let him in. And he spent his last moments teaching Anapanasati to a traveler that begged to receive the teachings. Until his last days, he never stopped teaching, which is a wonderful thing if you think about it. We're all here today, you know, the teaching of mindfulness. Anytime you hear anything mindfulness-based, we have to remember this comes from the teaching of the Buddha. So we have mindfulness-based stress reduction that's being taught and studied by Ivy League universities in the United States. But we have to understand that this is a traditional teaching that comes from the discovery of a human being just like you and just like me who discovered the way out of their suffering, which means if there's hope for that individual, there's hope for us too. And we just have to keep practicing, all right? So take your five minutes and see if you can sit five minutes a day and let that lead to something. And, and the five minutes is, is usually a, a, a commitment that everybody can make. We can take these five minutes every day and then you can let it grow. So I, I really recommend to start like that. Um, you can, you can make a, a timer that has a nice sound on your phone. Uh, you don't want to, not the same one you wake up to in the morning, you know, some nice gong sound, the bell, something like that. And then, and then after you sit for five minutes, I would say for three months, then you could think about seven minutes. Right? So you kind of work in long increments and make it a habit. After three months, you've established a new habit. First thing in the morning, last thing at night. These are the two best times to sit. First thing in the morning, because the mind hasn't started obsessing about the world yet. Last thing in the night, we can untie the knots of what we experience throughout the day. And these two times, you choose one, start there. Eventually you can do both, but don't overwhelm yourself. Don't reach to become the Buddha. Just reach to become little less miserable. And this is what we can hope to attain. Good. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www 
O-M-S-T-A-R-S dot com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.